Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Chris Dirksen, the executive pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit mycelfland.com. Two Sundays before Christmas. We got this Sunday, we got next Sunday, the 21st, uh, before uh, December 25th, before Christmas. And so, what I want to do over this Sunday and next Sunday is I just want to work my way through Matthew 2 and the Christmas story. And, uh, you know, as I was getting ready for this week, uh, Tuesday morning, I came to the office and I just had this thing kind of hanging over my head like, uh, the, the Christmas story again, <laughs> right? Like every year, you know, if, uh, those of you who are preachers, maybe there's not many here, but uh, when you have to preach the same story over and over and over again, you start to wonder like, how am I going to do this this year? And, uh, and so I just took Matthew 2 and I said, Lord, I just got to trust that it's, that it's fresh every, uh, every year again. And it, I'm just blown away every year. I mean, only God's word is that way, right? And you start to meditate, and you start to pray, and, uh, and then God just brings stuff, and you go, oh, I never saw it that way, and there's so much depth to it, and that's one of the things I just love about God's Word. And so we're gonna, I'm going to get to the first 12 verses, about the first half of Matthew 2 today, and then we'll do the rest of it next week. But today we're going to talk about the wise men, and uh, I'm just so pumped about the wise men. Lots there for us, lots of parallels for our lives. And I'm just going to read you the first four verses, and then we'll pray, and, and we'll get into this. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Lord Jesus, I just thank you for this story. First of all, I thank you that it is history. It's real. And that's what we're, we're basing our lives on this. I thank you, Jesus, that you took on flesh. You took on a human body to come and live among us and then to die for us so that we can be forgiven and live with you forever. It's an amazing, amazing story. And I thank you for the privilege of, and the freedom we still have in this country to speak about it and to preach it. And I thank you for the wise men. I thank you for the cast of regular, everyday human beings who you worked through and in and around and among well, when you came. And, and I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us in a powerful way this morning. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. I just love the way the Bible tells this story. Um, so we have three sentences there. Four verses, three sentences, covering hundreds of miles. The wise men come from far out east, probably in the Babylon area, Persian Empire, which in Jesus' day was known as the Parthian Empire. Um, three sentences describes the whole thing. They show up at Herod's door, tell them a king has been born, they saw a star in the sky, and there it is. I just love the way the Bible tells a story. A modern-day biographer, that's two or three hundred pages for sure. For sure. Modern-day biographer, you know, you've got to have the background. Who are these wise men? What happened to them in their, in their childhood? What did they look like? What was that journey like? And you've got to have this, the scene set, and Herod, what was he like? And what happened to him in his childhood that made him so crazy? And that, 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 that. And you'd have two or three hundred pages for this story for sure. The Bible, three sentences, move on. And, of course, that's a good thing. Uh, if the Bible went into depth like a modern-day biographer and all the stories that are in here, this would be a very big book and we wouldn't be able to carry it around with us. Um, but also, it's a good thing because it allows us to ponder and to meditate by the power of the Holy Spirit and to look into things and not just read over them. And so there's so much, you know, as we read this story again, and every year we get the Christmas story, but every year again it's fresh. We ponder it anew. And lots of questions come to mind this week as I was pondering and meditating and praying. Questions come to mind, like first of all, the naivety of these wise men. The naivety of these wise men to show up at Herod's front door and have the gall to ask him, 
hey, a new king has been born. You know where, you want to help us find him? I mean, I don't know much about kings, but I'm pretty sure from my understanding of how kings were and what they were like, that most, there are many kings in history who would have been happy to hear that kind of news. Hey, knock on the door, new king has just been born. I can't imagine many of them in history would have been happy to hear that. And this wasn't a good king, okay? Herod was one of the worst that ever lived. I mean, if you had a list of the most evil people who ever lived, you know, Hitler, Stalin, some of those, Herod is on that list. You know, he killed some of his own wife. He killed his favorite wife. I mean, imagine being his worst wife, okay? Killed some of his kids, burned a bunch of people alive, killed lots of people. Before he died, he was so hated, he gathered together, he got on the pain of death, he gathered together all the leading families of Jerusalem and Israel, all the, tri the families of the tribal leaders and political leaders, religious leaders, gathered them all, put them all in a stadium, and then, and then gave the command, when I die, you're going to kill all of them so that at least this place is going to mourn when, at my funeral. Because he knew nobody would cry for him. Now, fortunately, nobody took out, carried out his commands. But this is an evil man. And the wise men show up and ask this guy, I mean, just the naivety of it, uh, can you help us find the new king? I mean, this, I, I, I thought about that this week. I have no answers. I don't know why. why. It, it just is. And then I think about, you know, we think afresh. You know, we've heard this story so many times. How the wise, I mean, we just read over. They saw a star and they came. We've heard the story hundreds of times before. So it just makes sense to us. Well, of course, they saw the star and they came. They saw a star. Think about that. How did they know Jesus was born? He's got hundreds of miles away from Jerusalem. They weren't even Jews. And they knew the Messiah had been born because they saw it in the sky. Think about that. They didn't get an angelic visitation. There's lots of those in Scripture. They didn't have a prophetic vision. There's lots of those in Scripture. They saw it in the stars. The constellations lined up. You know, we're talking about galaxies. I mean, some of the stars, you look out in the night sky and we say, look at all the stars. They're not all stars. Some of the, the, the spots you see out there are not stars. They're galaxies. They're thousands of light years across. Okay, they're thousands of light years away, many of them. Some of them are millions of light years away. I mean, this vast universe, and at exactly the right point in time when Jesus was born, they all lined up and came together in such a way to say the Messiah has been born. I mean, that's incredible. I mean, I don't know how much you know about stars, but I mean, well, Psalm 19. Psalm 19 just comes to mind. David, Psalm 19, verse 1 and 2, David said this, and he wasn't thinking specifically of this, but it sure applies. But David said, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. And it just, it, I mean, it just comes alive in, this, in the Christmas story. That the sky literally, I mean, God just put a message on a billboard across the universe the Messiah has been born, and these guys were able to read it. I mean, do you have any idea of the sovereignty of God for that to happen? I mean, I don't know how much you know about stars, but stars, you, you can't just move them around easily. It's not like two days before or a month before God goes, oh, shoot, I should put a message in the sky. Start jumping. No, back before time began. I mean, from the moment the universe was created in the deep, deep, ancient path, before Adam and Eve had even considered sin or had even been created, God already, I mean, because these stars move according to mathematical laws. They move in a systematic way. And so before any of the, but the moment it was created, God already saw in the future the exact day that the Messiah was going to be born. And then he set the universe and the stars in mo exact motion, set over thousands of years as they go through all, blah, 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 and then at the exact right time, they line up. And, he's, and it just preaches a message to the whole world. The Messiah has been born. 
And of course, that just brings up a whole bunch. Like I said, we just ponder three sentences in the Bible, but we ponder, how were they able to read the message? Like, amazing. Constellations, galaxies, stars, planets, all coming together to preach a message. But wait a minute, how were they able to read the message? How did these guys from hundreds of miles away figure out what the message was saying? I mean, it's incredible that God would put it in the sky. It's incredible his intelligence and power to be able to do it. But how did they read it? How did they know what it was saying? Of course, we can't 100% know. The Bible doesn't tell us, and we can't read their minds, but you know, there's some interesting coincidences, if you believe in coincidences, that all play into this. Very interesting stuff. First of all, for example, something that many people today don't know in our society, but uh, constellations. There's a whole group of constellations and planets and stars that if you go back in history, uh, it almost, it, in all the major cultures, pretty much, you go through history, there's this group of constellations, and, and, and no matter which of these major cultures or languages you look in, they each have the same group of constellations with the same names. Okay, now, it's not totally true. I mean, each, each nation and culture added up their own constellations and, and different things, but there's this one group, uh, Virgo, the Virgin, uh, Leo, the Lion, the Scepter, Jupiter is the king planet, Draco. Um, there's, a, there's a whole bunch, and as soon as I say the names, you, right away you recognize some of them because they kind of apply to the Christmas story. But it's really interesting coincidence that you go back in time and across all the major cultures and languages, they each have the same constellation. If you connect the stars here, that's Virgo, that's the Virgin. Why would they all have that? Why would they all have Leo the lion? Why would they all have a scepter? And why would it be the exact same one? It's almost like someone way back at the beginning with the first people. It's almost like someone did it on purpose. It's almost like someone told one of those first human beings before it all split up into nations and stuff. It's almost like maybe Adam and Eve or one of them. It's almost like someone told them, connect this star, this star, this star, this star, call that the virgin. Connect this one, this one, this one, call that the line. Call this one the scepter. Call this planet here, that's the king star. That's the king planet. And this one is the dragon. And, and, and it's almost like they did that. And then as human population grew on the earth and nations were birthed and languages and the Tower of Babel and people spread out over the earth, it's almost like they took this truth with them and it passed down into their cultures. And of course, they added, each culture added some of their own. But there's this one basic set of constellations that's the same throughout all of them. It's really interesting. And the other interesting thing is that in a whole bunch of places in Scripture, you get these prophecies which refer to things that are happening on the earth, but at the very same time, they refer to these constellations. It's really interesting. And there's a few. I don't have time to get into all of them. Just sort of just a little bit of, you know, material here for you as, you're, as you think about the wise men. But if you, you can write these down, you can look at them later. But Revelation chapter 12 has a really interesting prophetic word, the first six verses. The first six verses tell the Christmas story in kind of spiritual terms. Talks about a woman with, a, with the sun on her head and a moon at her feet. She gives birth to a male child who will rule the world, and then a dragon tries to, to consume, tries to eat, tries to kill and destroy the child. Now, of course, right away we recognize that as the Christmas story. I mean, Mary is the woman or the virgin, right? And the male child to rule the world is Jesus and the dragon is Satan. That's Herod when he tried to kill all the babies. So we can, we can see the Christmas story in, in Revelation 1 to 6. But what's really interesting is that all the woman and the 12 stars that are head and the sun and the moon 
and the dragon and the child, all of them also refer to constellations. And Genesis 49, verses 9 to 10, you have, a, you have this uh, uh, prophecy about how the tribe of Judah is, is a lion and how the scepter will never depart from the lion. There, a ruler, a Messiah, is going to come out of the lion, out of Judah. And Numbers 24, 17, another prophecy very similar to that. The scepter will not depart from the lion. And you get on and on. You have these prophecies that talk specifically about things that happened with Jesus on the earth and, and Israel and Judah, but also have parallels to constellations and stars in the sky. It's not an accident. And then where things get really, really interesting is they have programs now. I mean, now we live in the, in the 21st century and there's all this amazing stuff and technology and NASA has a program now that any regular Joe, you can access it online and, and you can go back in time because of the movements of all the stars and constellations and planets, it's all according to mathematical laws. So you can go back in time now with this program. You can go to any date in history. You can go back 5,000 years. You can go back five days. And you can see what did the night sky look like? Where, because it's all mathematical, and the computer program will show you exactly where all the stars and planets were on that night. And you can go to any place in the world. You go to Jerusalem or Tokyo or any place in the world, and you can see 400 years ago from that spot on the earth, what did the night sky look like? And what's so fascinating now, and, they've, and I, I don't have time to get into all the details. I'm just going to take a few minutes here at the beginning. I, I want to move on with some stuff about the wise men, but they've even made a, a documentary about this now. It's fascinating, the Star of Bethlehem. We have it in our library. You can also look it up online. Lots of research, well-researched, uh, uh, wonderful stuff. It's called the Star of Bethlehem. But, but anyway, you can, so you can look all this up. But anyway, what's really fascinating is you go back in time to the year when Jesus was born in 2 BC, and what's really fascinating is this dance that happens in the constellations between Virgo the Virgin and Leo the Lion and the King Planet and Venus the Mother Planet and a few other things. A bunch of stunning, stunning things happen in the sky that cannot be coincidence with these perfectly named constellations. Like it's just like someone way back in deep human history put these actors, put the names in place so that for a play that was going to be played out. And so just a few things, just to, just to give you, just to whet your appetite, but there's so many, there's just such a list of them, it couldn't be an accident, it's just unbelievable. And all happened in the year that Jesus was born. But one thing that happened in the fall of 3 BC, and Jesus was born in, in 2 BC, but uh, in the fall of 3 BC, um, uh, the planet Jupiter, again, it's, and it's fascinating that in all the Middle Eastern cultures, they all saw Jupiter as the king planet. And they all saw the star Regulus as the, as the king star. And in the, year, in the fall of 3 BC, the star planet Jupiter and the star, uh, uh, or, or it's not the star planet, there's no such thing as a star planet, um, the king planet Jupiter and the king star Regulus uh, did what's called a conjunction. And that's an astronomical term. You don't need to remember it. It just means the two of them passed in front of each other. So that from Earth, the two would become one. They, they become exceptionally bright, but they come together. It's a conjunction, okay? And so you've got this king of kings things ha happening. Which in itself, you know, Jupiter and, and Regulus having this con king of kings conjunction, it ha it's not super rare. It happens about once every 12 years or so. It's something, but it's not huge. But what's really interesting is that in the fall of 3 BC is um, something much more rare in, in, uh, in astronomy is this effect called retrograde motion, which is according, again, my point is not to get into a doctorate of, of astronomy here, but, but um, um, retrograde motion at certain times, because of a certain number of things that happen, a planet will appear, like the planets are all moving in a certain direction according to the Earth's 
uh, orbit and various things that we're doing, um, the planets all move in a certain direction, but at certain times, because of certain factors that happen from planet Earth, a planet will appear to reverse its course and go backwards. Well, in the fall of 3 BC, and again, you can see all this. NASA has it all worked out, and you can go and look at it. But in the fall of 3 BC, there's this conjunction between the king planet and the king star. They go in front of each other. They become very bright. And then Jupiter continues on its way. But then in the fall of 3 BC, what happens is it turns around, it comes back, and they have another conjunction. And then they do it again. They do it one more time. Three conjunctions. Now, this is really rare. But what's even more fascinating is three conjunctions in the fall of 3 BC between the king planet and the king star. And remember, and, and this is not just made up after the, the fact. All the cultures of that day saw these things as king and king. But what's really interesting is that how everything lined up in the fall of 3 BC is when the king planet Jupiter and the king star Regulus, the king of kings, were conjuncting with each other three times because of the way everything was lining up in the Middle East, was that they were doing so on top of, it looked like it was coming out of, the constellation Leo, which is the lion, the tribe of Judah. And at the same time, and again, and there's just a whole string. I'm just giving, I'm just winning. I'm just doing three or four. All of this happened the very day, okay? The very day the first conjunction happened on top of Leo the lion, between the king planet and the king star, on top of the lion, coming out of, uh, out of Leo there, the lion, the, the, on the very day that first conjunction happened, the Virgo, the constellation Virgo, which is the Virgin, came up that morning. So that first night, there was a conjunction over top of Leo. That very morning, as the sun came up, Virgo came up exactly lined up with the sun so that the sun was on her head, and the new moon came up at her feet, exactly identical to Revelation 12, 1 to 6. And then what's really interesting is you go nine months after that fact, after that whole series of things happened on that day, you go nine months later, and women, when you hear the time period, nine months, what do you think? Okay? Some of you think of it with trauma. Some of you think of it with weeping and gnashing of teeth. But nine months later, <laughs> nine months after this happened, one of the most spectacular things that had ever been seen in the sky in history, and certainly up to that point, was... Jupiter, the king planet, and Venus, which in all the cultures of that day was known as the mother planet, Jupiter and Venus had a conjunction nine months after that first series of events in the sky uh, where they came together. And because Jupiter and Venus are close, they're much closer to us than the stars are, they, they, they are already bright in the sky. They had a conjunction together where they became together as one. It was the brightest thing. You can go back in time now, you can, or you can go back you know, with computers and look at this. It was the brightest star that had ever been seen from planet Earth to that point in human history. And you go, wow. And then there's a whole string of other things, just a whole, whole string of other things. Not coincidence. And right away, it caused you to, to wonder at the sovereignty of God to wind up this unbelievably complex clock of the universe and have it all line up right when Jesus is being born. And of course, right away your mind goes to, I mean, that first set of events with the conjunction in the tribe of Judah on Leo and the virgin coming up with the sun. Was that the day the Holy Spirit conceived Jesus in Mary's womb? And, and was, you know, Venus and Jupiter coming together to make literally the brightest thing? I mean, any of the astronomers or people who were into stars, which was a lot of people in the cultures of those days, uh, in those days in, in the summer of two BC, who would have seen Jupiter and Venus coming together, that would have been a big deal. It was very, very bright. It was a spectacular conjunction. In fact, it's so, it was so spectacular, many planetariums you go to today, 
They show different slideshows of the sky without knowing it. They show you a, without, or they, they know what they're doing, but they don't think of it with significance to Jesus or what I'm talking about. Many planetariums today in their slideshows of the night sky will show you a computer-generated picture of that day when, Junus, when uh, Jupiter and Venus came together simply because it was so spectacular. And so was that the day when those two came together, the mother planet and the king planet, was that the day Jesus was born? We can't know for sure, but it sure causes you to ask the question, and it did all happen in that year. And, and the wise men were watching this, and then you think, I mean, was Jupiter and Venus coming together to make the most spectacular star display in all of human history to that point from planet Earth, as viewed from planet Earth, was that the star of Bethlehem that started them on their journey? We, we can't know for sure, but they were watching this stuff. They were watching these events and they were able to interpret them. And, and you say, well, how did, okay, that's amazing. First of all, it's amazing that the constellations all just happen to have the right names. And they all just happen to come together in that year. But how would these guys out in the Babylon area, out in the Persian Empire, how would they go f- take that leap from there to a Jewish king has been born, we need to worship him? Again, we we don't know everything. We don't, we don't know very much even. It, it, it's speculation, but certainly there's possibilities. Somewhere along the way, they had to have gotten the idea. They were looking for this. They were looking for a Jewish Messiah. How did they get that idea that, that these stars coming together would mean a Jewish king had been born? Well, if we go back to the time of Daniel, we find a possibility. See, these, these Persians, the, the, the word there, wise men, is the word in Greek, magi. It can also be translated magicians. Okay? The Magi were, uh, they were a kind of a, uh, uh, they were a group of advisors. They were like priests and science experts all rolled into one, okay? They were experts in astronomy, let's say the stars. They were also experts in astrology, which is more occultic. That's where you try to interpret things in the future from the stars. They were also, they were experts in science, and their job was to advise Persian kings and emperors. But these guys were not out there in Babylon all by themselves without any Jewish influence, See, 600 years earlier, before the time of Jesus, we know from the Old Testament, one of the major storylines of the Old Testament is that Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians, took the Jews into exile to Babylon. And that was 600 years previous. Well, when the Jews went back to the land of Israel, not all of them left. Many of them stayed. And at the time of Jesus, there was a huge population of Jews living in the Persian Empire around the city of Babylon. Okay? And so there's, there's, it's, there's a good chance that these wise men had, had just from that, had been exposed to the Jewish scriptures. But there's even more there. If you go back to the book of Daniel, right? Daniel, important prophetic book. Daniel prophesied, a whole, had a whole bunch of prophecies about the Messiah. Incredible prophecies about this Jewish king who would rise up and he would rule the world and his kingdom would never end. He has some spectacular prophecies. We'll look at one in just a moment. But Daniel, you read the book of Daniel, and the way the Holy Spirit worked things is Daniel became the chief of the wise men or the magi in, in the Babylonian empire. He was the chief of them. Then later, when the Persian Empire conquered the Babylonian Empire, Daniel just transferred over. He became, again, he became the chief prince under King Darius, and most likely he continued to be the chief over the Magi or the wise men as well. So we, can't, we don't know this for sure, but it is quite possible that Daniel, and, and because Daniel made many messianic prophecies, and somewhere these guys, they, they didn't just come out of a vacuum. They weren't just randomly looking at the sky and, that's a Jewish king, we better go worship him. Like, they were looking for this in advance. They knew what they were looking for. And so it's quite possible that Daniel passed down to the Magi when he was there, that he passed down his messianic prophecies 
uh, a love for the Jewish scriptures, perhaps we don't know, and so they were looking for these things. Now, in addition to this, Daniel makes one in, uh, well, he makes a whole bunch, but Daniel is, of all the prophetic books in the Bible, the most spectacular, you know, uh, prophecies that came true, Daniel is, is full of them. And there's one prophecy in particular in Daniel 9, where Daniel actually prophesied the exact time period when the Messiah would come. And I want to just read it to you because this sets the tone. Like the, the wise men, if, if they got their knowledge passed down to them from Daniel, it makes sense why they were looking for these things to happen right at this time. Daniel 9, 25 to 26 says this, Now listen and understand, seven sets of seven plus 62 sets of seven. Well, Pat, and by the way, there are layers to this prophecy that we could get into that are fulfilled. Uh, it's it's uh, amazing, absolutely astonishing. But there's a reason why he doesn't just say 69 sets of seven. He says he splits it up into seven sets of seven and then 62 sets of seven. The reason is because, and here I just said I wouldn't do it, but I'll just explain quickly. Uh, seven sets of seven and then 62 sets of seven. The reason he doesn't, doesn't just give one period of time is, is Nehemiah came 49 years later and rebuilt Jerusalem, okay, which is really interesting. But anyway, uh, seven sets of seven, and then after that came the Messiah, 62 sets of seven later. But anyway, um, seven sets of seven plus 62 sets of seven will pass from the time the command is given to rebuild Jerusalem. Now, um, when Daniel was writing this prophecy, the, Jerusalem had, was, was decimated, and all the Jews were in exile in Babylon. He writes this prophecy that someone's going to rebuild Jerusalem, and after that time, there's going to be seven sets of seven, and there's going to be 62 sets of seven. There's going to be 69 sets of seven, Okay? And 69 times 7, for those of you who hadn't figured it out already, I know most of you have already done it in your heads, but is 483 years, okay? 483 years exactly. Now, a few years after Daniel made this prophecy, Cyrus the Great rose up as emperor over Persia. And we read about this in Ezra and in Nehemiah, but, but Cyrus the Great actually, and at the end of Second Chronicles, um, Cyrus the Great makes a decree and he allows the Jews to go back to their land and to rebuild the temple, to rebuild Jerusalem, okay? Now, if you take the year when King Cyrus made that decree and you count 483 years, you come out at, very interestingly enough, Jesus' baptism. When he first goes public with who he is and then his public ministry. Before that, he's hidden. Nobody knows that he's the Messiah, none of that. He hasn't proclaimed himself to the world. It's exactly 483 years from Cyrus that, that there's no accident there. There's also no accident in that in Luke. The book of Luke, uh, Luke doesn't talk about any dates. He only mentions a date once, and that is the date of Jesus' birth, uh, uh, Jesus' baptism. Okay? So now these events, the wise men are looking at stars. This is happening 30 years before Jesus' baptism. This is 30 years before he's going to appear on the world stage and announce himself. Um, but what's interesting is, so these guys, if, if, if this was passed down from Daniel, which seems likely because they can't be coming out of a vacuum, but we don't know for sure. But if they have received as an inheritance the prophecies of Daniel, and if they're counting down the years, they're starting to look for something now because they now know they're 30 years away. We're 30 years away from the Messiah appearing. And so he's got to be born in here somewhere, 30 years away from appearance. So they're looking to the sky, and who knows, did Daniel have prophetic revelation of exactly what the stars would do? Did he pass that down? We don't know, and so that's how they knew. But however it is, that something was going on there. They knew something of Jewish prophecy, and when the stars aligned, they came to Jerusalem to see and to worship. They knew they were to worship this king as well. He was not just an ordinary 
uh, king, which is amazing. And now what I want to do is I want to look back again at Matthew chapter 2, and I want to contrast with you how the wise men, here they come from hundreds of miles away to worship this king because they've seen it written in the stars. Okay? And I want to contrast this, that with their response and their searching with the response of the Jewish leaders, verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And of course, that doesn't surprise us. He was a wicked, evil, psychotic man. We're not surprised that he would be troubled by this news. What is surprising, of course, it's not much in this story is surprising to us anymore because we've heard it so many times, but we have to enter back into the story and let us surprise us anew that this isn't how it was supposed to work out. We just know the ending now. So, of course, the religious leaders, they're the bad guys. Of course, they're troubled. We don't stop to think they're supposed to be the good guys. Herod is troubled, but what's interesting is, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And again, so put out of your mind the fact that you've heard this story a hundred times before and you know who the bad guys are supposed to be. The Jewish religious leaders are supposed to be looking forward to the Messiah's return. I mean, these are the guys that have all the Bible prophecies. These are the keepers of the prophetic promises. These are the guys who preached in the synagogues on Saturdays and in the temple preaching about, you know, the Messiah is going to come someday. And the Jewish people as a whole were longing for the, for the Messiah to come. The, I mean, these are supposed to be the good guys. These are the guys with the theology degrees. These are the guys who are teaching the Bible. These are the guys who love the Bible. Okay? So these are the guys, like, when the wise men show up. Now, first of all, it's interesting to me that, I mean, if anybody should have known first, it should have been the guys who knew all about the Bible, who were living in Jerusalem, which is God's city. The chosen people who have the scriptures, who've studied them, who are in God's city. Bethlehem is only five miles away. It's next door. I mean, they should have been the first ones to know that the Messiah had been born. But it takes these guys traveling hundreds of miles from the east who aren't even Jews. It takes them coming in to say, hey, the Messiah's been born. They religiously just had no idea. But then what's so fascinating to me is they are troubled by this. They're troubled by this. You know, it's interesting too, you've got the wise men from out east. They know the Messiah's been born. The only other group to this point that knows the Messiah's been born outside of Mary and Joseph and, and maybe some of their family or friends or whatever is shepherds who also have no theological training and are despised. So, and then you have the people who have it all together and who are the most respected and who are the ones who preach about it the most and they're the last ones to find out. And when they do find out, they're troubled. So the question is, how does God, how does God determine who he's going to talk to, right? Who does God confide in? Well, people, different people give different answers, right? Some people these days, they're big into, you know, social justice and the poor, and they would say God speaks to the poor and the brokenhearted. He speaks to the shepherds and the prostitutes. That's who God loves to speak to. Well, and amen, it's true. God does love to speak to the brokenhearted. He does love to speak to the poor. He does love to speak to the prostitutes and the disenfranchised and all that. But the amazing thing about this, this story is he also spoke to the wise men who are very, very wealthy. So it's not economic status. Who does God confide his secrets in? Yeah, he loves the poor, but he loves to talk to, to rich people too. He talked to rich and poor. So who does God confide in? Well, someone might say, um, he confides in the least expected. Like, like he just picks. He, it's like a game. 
Whoever we least expect him to speak to, aha, that's who he speaks to. Well, no. I mean, if God wanted to speak, if that was the criteria, is that this is a game to God and he's just trying to surprise us, like whoever we least expect him to speak to, that's who he's going to speak to. Then he could have spoken to uh, murderous, you know, murderers and corrupt Roman officials. Uh, He could have spoken to lots of wicked people. He could have spoken to King Herod then. We wouldn't have expected that, okay? But he didn't speak to them either. Okay? The criteria is not economic. He's, he loves to confide in rich. He loves to confide in poor. But it's not just that, it just so happens that they happen to be the least expected in this case, but it, it's not that either. It also clearly isn't theology because the theologians in this group are the last ones to know. That's, I love that. I mean, the wise men, their theology, we don't, I mean, they have some good stuff obviously going on in their hearts because they came to worship the Jewish king. But I mean, these guys, again, they're magi. They are a mixed bag theologically. They, they probably had some occult leanings, okay? They probably had some bad stuff in there with their theology. The shepherds were just totally ignorant. The guys with the theology are the guys that are completely ignorant. So who does God confide in? If it's not theology and economic status, who does he confide in? And really it comes down to the most basic thing again, what we say over and over and over again. It comes down to he speaks to the ones with soft, humble, listening hearts. Soft. doesn't matter. You can be soft, humble, and listening and be fabulously wealthy. You can be soft, humble, and listening. You can be broken in poverty. It's not economic status. He goes to the ones who have listening hearts. And you say, oh, oh. wow, that was built up for obvious. Really obvious, Chris. We know it's, it's all about the heart, yada, yada. You're saying that all the time. But the crazy thing is, it really isn't obvious. We say it's obvious, but it isn't obvious. Because we look around at the church today. You look at the church today in North America, and you look at how do we find our leaders, right? How do we find our leaders? You say, well, it's obvious. It's all about the heart. I read the Christmas story. God speaks to the one who have, ones who have listening hearts. And then we go, and I'm not criticizing anyone. I'm just talking to a tendency that we see. I'm just talking to a, a general tendency we see in our culture with churches we say it's all about the heart. And then when we want to go, when we want to get a leader to lead us in the name of Jesus and to lead us in the things of the Spirit, what, what do we ask? What's the main question we ask? What's the theology? Well, amen. Theology is important. But it's like the only question a lot of us ask. It's like, where did you go to school? How good are your papers? Come and preach once. And if you can preach well, you can lead us in the things of the Spirit. Well, again, amen. Theology is important. You don't want some quack who believes all kinds of crazy stuff. But I want you to notice in this story, the ones who had all the theology were the last ones to know what God was up to. And when they did find out, they ended up being on the opposite side of him and opposing him. And today, many churches, it's like, where'd you go to school? What's your degree? Okay, you can preach pretty good. You're fine. What about the prayer life? You hire a guy from 800 miles away, and all you know is what he has up here. You don't know anything here. Does this person have a prayer life? Does this person actually walk with Jesus and know Jesus? Can this person actually hear God? Does this person have a consistent testimony of bubbling over in the Spirit and loving Jesus with their whole heart, like actually feeling it and loving Him? None of that hardly even, well, it's just theology. So we say it's obvious on the one hand, and then as a church culture as a whole, we live totally opposite. And it isn't about all that. Oh, man, we've got to have preachers and leaders who study theology. And it's important to know what we believe. And it's important to get it right as much as we possibly can. But really, when it comes down to it, the people who God is speaking to are the ones with the hearts. 
humble listening. And one of the reasons I think it's so important to preach this message is because there's this false sense of smug security that many Christians today have, where it's like, hey, you, you tell them, we need to pray for the church in Canada. Oh, the church in Canada is fine. I go down the street, they're preaching the Bible, they're preaching the Bible, they're preaching the Bible, they're preaching the Bible. And people have this false sense of smug security like, hey, if a church preaches the Bible, they must be okay. And if you want to hear something that's really politically incorrect in Christian circles, let me tell you this. Just because they preach the Bible doesn't mean they're okay. The religious leaders preach the Bible Sabbath in and Sabbath out, and we're on the opposite side of God. Because in the end, you can know this book backwards and forwards, have all your theology crossed off correctly, and if your heart's not right, you still have no idea how God works in the world around you. You still have no idea. So you think, oh, they preach the Bible every week. They preach the Bible. Do they pray? Do they love Jesus? Is there any evidence of the Spirit at work in their midst? We've got to have the Bible central. No question, we've got to have the Bible central to everything we're doing. But the Bible by itself and theology by itself, apart from a humble, listening people who actually hear God's voice and walk with Him, if those two things aren't together, this one by itself is dead. This one by itself is just crazy. We've got to have the two together. Humble, listening people who also love the Scriptures. We keep going. Verse 5, you're going to see how much these guys know about the Bible. So the wise men, the, the religious leaders who are right there, he just was born next door. They have no idea what God's up to right next door. The wise men come from hundreds of miles away, and they tell them what's happening. And then these guys open the Bible because they actually do know the answers. The wise men are like, so where was he born? We know he's born. We know he's around here somewhere, but where is he born? Well, they have the Bible knowledge. So they open up their Bibles to Micah chapter 5, verse 2, and they quote Micah 5, 2. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and here's Micah 5, verse 2, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And so the, the religious leaders have the right answer. They have the theology. They have the right Bible answer. And what happens next is really, really sad. It's the saddest thing, or one of the saddest things for sure, in this story. The wise men come from 100 miles away. They're already ignorant of the things of God. But they open up their Bibles and they give a correct theological answer. He's, been born, he's born in Bethlehem. That's where he's coming. And now the wise men saddle up their camels or whatever. I mean, that's what the pictures say, so it's got to be true. Um, they saddle up their camels or their reindeer or whatever, and they <laughs> head to Bethlehem to worship the Messiah. And what's so sad about this whole thing is it's only five miles away. And not one religious leader can be bothered to go and make the trip to see if maybe it's true. Not one of them. Not one of them can actually be bothered. It's just five miles. These, these, these exotic dignitaries just came hundreds of miles and told you that the stuff you've seen in the stars, that, I mean, everybody had noticed some of these star things that were happening would have been incredible. They just didn't know what they all meant. Their hearts weren't open, but the wise men just came and said, these incredible events you've seen in the stars means the Messiah has been born. And not one of them, I mean, maybe you're not 100% convinced, but not one of them is even curious enough about the Messiah to go follow them and find out if it is true. Why is that? I'll tell you why. It's because they actually weren't excited to see the Messiah come. See, these guys... If you ask them, you ask, any, uh, you ask any of these Jewish religious leaders, any self-respecting Jewish religious leader, do you want the Messiah to come? Oh, of course. Oh, the Messiah comes, it's going to be amazing. It's going to be heaven on earth. It's going to be awesome. 
oh, we long for the Messiah's return. They would all tell you that. Consciously, that's what they would think. Consciously, that's what they would speak. But actually, deep down, they had no experience of the Messiah. And they'd gotten kind of comfortable with their lives. I mean, yeah, Herod was a wicked king, but they'd kind of come to a balance of power. They could work with him. He was kind of predictable. Um, and then they had all the prestige. Everybody honored them. They had the place of honor. They had political power. They had money. They were well off. They were paid. And you know what? Life actually was just pretty good. So yeah, on the outside, they're always talking the Messiah, the Messiah, and the Messiah. But actually on the inside, when the rubber meets the road and there's actually a chance the Messiah might be here, instead of being joyful, they're actually troubled because, oh, that means everything's going to change. I don't know if I want... And really down deep in their hearts, we find that these people are not people who really love God. We find these are people who are kind of attached to their lives. And so instead of being excited, they're actually more nervous. They're actually more troubled. They're actually more bothered by this than anything. And of course, <laughs> here we are 2,000 years later, and we're Christians, and we know the story, and we know who the bad guys are. So we don't empathize at all with the Jewish religious leaders because they're the bad guys. Oh, those Jewish religious leaders, so hard so attached to material things, so attached to their lives here on this earth that they couldn't even be excited about the possibility that Messiah was about to appear. She goes, I was meditating again this week. Are we any different? Are we any different? You say, oh boy, he's about to hit us. <laughs> Let's just think about this for a moment. There are a lot of parallels between the Christmas story and our story right now. In a Christmas story, the people were supposed to be looking forward to the Messiah's appearing. But wait a minute. Aren't we supposed to be looking forward to the Messiah's appearing? I mean, technically? I mean, aren't we supposed to be looking forward to his second coming? Isn't that true? We're supposed to be. I mean, they were, we just look at that. This is the Christmas story. That was different. We don't look forward to Jesus returning now. That's weird. But the first coming, they were supposed to look forward to that. Second coming, that's for weirdos and zealots. That's for nut jobs. But those wicked religious leaders at the first coming, Christmas story, they were supposed to be pumped about the Messiah's coming. They were supposed to be watching for the Messiah's coming. They were supposed to be excited about the Messiah's coming. And wait a minute, it should be the exact same thing for the church today. Jesus is actually coming back. Did you know that? We're actually supposed to be watching for it. We're actually supposed to be excited about that. The bad guys at the first coming were the ones who weren't watching. The good guys were the ones who were watching. And you know, the signs are coming now. If God, do you think if God would blare the message of Jesus first coming into the sky, you think he would neglect to put signs in place for the second coming, which is the one he's really looking forward to, where he doesn't have to die, where he just gets to rule forever and ever? You think he put, he put signs for the first coming, the second coming, total surprise, nobody's going to be able to see it coming. You think so? No. No, 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 no. In fact, we see tremendous things happening in the world all around us right now. I mean, it's, it's been less than 50 years since the Jewish people retook the city of Jerusalem. That is a miracle. That's a modern-day miracle on par with the parting of the Red Sea. It's every bit as big. It's a miracle. It's a modern-day miracle. It's unbelievable. Jewish people back in the land of Israel. That's in, that's in, not quite my day, but that's in my parents' day anyway, okay? 
the Great Commission, for the first time in 2,000 years, the Great Commission, for the first time in all of church history, the Great Commission, Matthew 28, Jesus said to the church, before he left, he said, I got one big job for you guys. Got one big job. This is what you need to do. You need to go and make disciples of every single ethnic group on the planet. Then he left. And for 1,900 years, a lot of stuff happened in the Middle East, but almost nothing else happened anywhere else. And as of 100 years ago, after 1,900 years of trying, the church was still less than 5% done the Great Commission. But you know, we're living in crazy times now. Not only are the Jews back in the land of Israel and back in control of the city of Jerusalem, in the last 100 years, the advance of the Great Commission reaching ethnic groups that have never heard, that have no disciples, that do not know about Jesus, has gone exponential. 1,900 years, we were less than 5% done. In the last 100 years, we've almost completed it. Did you know that right now, as I speak, on average, every four to five days, the Bible gets translated into a brand new language It's never for a brand new people group that it's, have never heard the gospel before? Every four to five days, it's happening right now. That's why experts are telling us now that we are probably 10 to 15 or 20 years from actually completing the Great Commission in our lifetime. 2,000 years of church history, we haven't been anywhere close the entire time. And for the first time in church history... We are actually close. It could be, now, is it going to be 10? Is it going to be 15? Is it going to be 20? Is it going to be 21? I don't know. Fact, different factors could happen in the world, could slow it down, could speed it up. But I do know this, Matthew 24, verse 14. You want to check it out? You can check it out. Jesus preached a whole end time message when he was coming back. And he said in verse 14 of Matthew 24, he said, and this gospel will be preached to all nations. And the Greek word there is ethnos for ethnic groups. And then he said this, and then the end will come. Think Jesus can be wrong about anything? And then the end will come. You say, oh, Chris just predicted 10 to 20 years. Go in all the coffee shops. Tell them. They'll love that. They'll eat that up. <laughs> they will absolutely love that. I'm not saying 10 to 20 years. I'm not saying he's coming back. First of all, things could happen to slow down the Great Commission or speed it up. I'm also not saying, he, he didn't say he would come back right exact, that exact day when it's completed. He said, and then the end will come. But he did say, just a few verses later, towards the end of the chapter, he said, the generation that sees all these things take place will not pass away before they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. So these things are coming true in our day. The wise men were watching their signs. We got Matthew 24. We got scads of scripture in here of signs for his second coming. You don't think God's going to put in place signs? He is putting in place signs. He has put in place signs. And for the first time in church history, many of them are coming together in our generation. But you talk to people about this, you know there's a good possibility Jesus could actually come back in our lifetime. Or in, yeah, someone, one person is excited. The rest of you... Or he could come back in our kids' lifetime. I don't know exactly when, but it could be very, very close. But you know what the response is of most Christians today? Oh, that's weird. You know why? We're not stung by hope by that. We're troubled by it. Many churches avoid the topic entirely. Go back and look at the story of the first coming. The ones who looked forward to it were the good ones. So the ones who wanted it. Hope and joy, they were watching, they were studying for it. And the same will be true at his second coming. But you know, I find a lot of encouragement in this too. You say, well, why is that? It's not, it's not a guilt trip. Some of you are sitting there and you're going, I feel so guilty because I'm not looking forward to his second coming. You know why so many Christians aren't looking forward to it today? In the West, I'm not talking about the rest of the world, it's very different for them. 
But in the West, there's, I think there's, there's, there's a couple of things. First of all, we don't actually know him. How can you look forward to someone's coming and you don't know them? If you don't know him, you don't look forward to it. We have a whole bunch of doctrines up here. We sit in church week after week after week after week and get fat on doctrine and theology with almost no experience of the power of God in our lives. And then someone says, Jesus is coming back, and on the outside we know what we're supposed to say. Oh, it's going to be so good. And on the inside it's like, well, because we don't actually know him. This isn't a guilt trip. If you're sitting here today and you're going, I'm not really excited about the thought of Jesus' return. I, the biggest thing is get to know him. You don't work up, i got to work up a feeling of excitement. Mm, I'm getting excited. Oh, God, I'm excited you're coming back. <laughs> get to know him and he'll steal your heart. And many of us, because we don't have a relationship with him in the West, again, not in other places of the world, it's very different there, but we've got attached, we've got dream houses to build and hobbies to pursue and a career ladder to climb, and we're so busy with all this and we don't have much of a relationship with him over here, of course we don't look forward to it. This isn't a guilt trip. It's about turning our eyes to him. Get into a relationship with him. Get into a relationship with him and then you can have a response like the wise men had because I have a, find a lot of encouragement in the wise men because they were wealthy. They had wealth too, just like we do in our culture today, and yet they managed to still maintain a good heart that looked forward to the Messiah's coming. I want you to see there, if we jump ahead just a couple of verses. After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And look at verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Is that not beautiful? They had wealth too. You know what? Just because we're, we have wealth in our culture doesn't mean we're doomed. Doomed to apathy. We're not doomed. The wise men were not doomed. They looked forward to the Messiah's coming. When they knew he was close, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And you know, as I was praying this week, I realized suddenly a message was coming to me. I realized, you know what? The wise men are forerunners for the last day's church. They are the example, the prototype for how we are supposed to be today. And there's four things in this story, and I just want to finish with this. There's four things in this story that the wise men are models and forerunners for us today. Number one, they were studying the signs and they were watching for the signs. They're the good guys in this story. They're not the wackos. They're not the weirdos. They're the good guys in this story. They studied the signs. They knew what the signs were, and they were watching them. God's given us a whole bunch of signs again. Lots and lots and lots of them. Matthew 24 is a great place to start. But they knew the signs, and they watched them. And the last day's church needs to study the signs and watch them. Second of all, when they, when they knew that the Messiah was close, oh, their hearts rejoice with exceeding joy. As the day of Jesus coming back comes closer and closer, we should be in such intimate relationship with him that our hearts should actually bubble out with joy. It's soon. Thirdly, verse 11, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Love that. They, when they encountered him, when they knew it was close, they rejoiced. They studied the signs. They knew the signs. They watched them. They rejoiced that he was close. And then they met him. And when they met him, the first thing they did is they sat down and they had a theological discussion. Is he God? Is he man? Original sin, atonement, sanctification. They had a theological debate. When they saw him, it's like, whoa, what is it? No. I love theology. It's so important. We've got to know what we believe, and we've got to believe correctly. It is important, but it's only important if it leads us to fall down and worship him when we meet him. 
So when they saw him, they did not have a Bible study or debate. When they saw him, this was the one they'd been looking for the whole time. They fell down and they worshipped him. Now again, it just seems so obvious. We read the Christmas story. Chris, that's so obvious. But again, do we in our Christian culture today in the West do this? We say it's obvious and then we do opposite. How many churches today, Bible teaching, Bible teaching, Bible teaching, Bible teaching. Love Bible teaching. We don't need to do less of it. But they have this smug sense of, we teach the Bible week after week after week. And by the way, when's your next prayer meeting when we just fall on our face before God? Uh, prayer meeting? Churches do that? Or we teach the Bible. Well, it's great you teach the Bible. But if you don't encounter Jesus, then what is it? It's just dead. They fell down and they worshipped him. A church that is alive, a church that does not pray and that does not worship God, they have all the Bible teaching they want, it's almost dead. There's no experience of Jesus there. There's no knowledge of Jesus there. The religious leaders had this by itself. I'm not saying we don't need this. We need this at the center of everything. We need to teach it lots. But we need it together with hearts that listen to him and experience him and pray to him. And the days as Jesus coming gets closer and closer, there needs to be a surge that just sweeps the churches of the West, that needs to sweep this church, that needs to sweep churches across Canada, a surge of prayer. That we're not just Bible teaching churches. We are Bible teaching churches, yes, but we know Jesus and we fall on our faces before him regularly and we, have, we pray, that's what we do. We pray and we talk to him and we listen to him individually and as a corporate body. Anything else, what is it? Jesus didn't make us to be a bunch of robots that debate theology forever. I made these wonderful robots, and they're going to debate theology forever with me in my kingdom. Yuck. He made us to love him. This is what he wants. People to encounter him fall down in prayer and worship. And then out of their encounter with him, the fourth thing, they are, they are forerunners for us. Then, I love this line, Opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. First, they studied the signs. They rejoiced that he was close. Then they encountered him, and they worshipped him and prayed. And then out of that experience with him, they counted out their pocket change and gave to him out of the extra of what they owned. No. They encountered Jesus, and then they pulled out their budgets, figured out all the stuff they wanted to buy and invest in that year, and what was left over, they gave to Jesus. No, no. They encountered him, and then they ran this, and they ran that, and then they figured out, well, you know what, okay, well, I want that, and I want that, I want that, and then here, uh, this is what's left for Jesus. No, that's not what they did either. What did they do? They encountered Jesus, then they opened to him their treasures, and give to him out of their extra they opened, him, they opened him their treasures, not because they had to. It wasn't like, oh, what's the rule on tithing? I feel really guilty. I better give him something. No. When you actually encounter Jesus, some of you have experienced this, this most wonderful thing. Some of you haven't, and I pray that you will. When you actually begin to encounter Jesus and get to know him, he starts to lead you in your family and he rescues you. I, I find this still today. You think, well, Chris, what do you need rescuing from? You wouldn't believe. Without Jesus, I'm a bad, bad man. We're just regular people too. 
I need rescuing in my marriage. I need rescuing in my parenting. I need rescuing all over the place. So you begin to walk with Jesus and listen to him, and he grows you here, and he grows you here, and he helps you here, and he answers this. He actually begins to steal your heart. So you get to know him, he actually starts to steal your heart. Then what, then what happens next is this. He begins to steal your heart, and you need an outlet to say, I just need to do something to show you I love you or I'm going to burst. And then you don't give them out of your extra. You open up your treasures, and it's the greatest joy. It's one of the greatest joys you will ever experience on this earth is to encounter Jesus, to meet him, to know how much he loves you. And then in response, there's something that's triggered when it's two ways. It's not just one way. Oh, I love how much he loves me. But somehow, when you respond to that by opening up your treasures and giving back to him enthusiastically and sacrificially, it's in that response that his love becomes even more real to you. It becomes two-way. It becomes epic. And it's just like, this is the most wonderful thing in the world. You love me. You are real. And I just want you to have everything. And in that giving to him everything and receiving his love, this relationship takes a hold of you. It steals you. It is joy. That's what eternal life is all about. It's not about rules. It's not about how much do I have to give. It's none of that. It's about I love you and I know you. And you know the church in the last days as Jesus gets closer and closer and closer, that's what the Holy Spirit wants to do here. That's what the Holy Spirit wants to do through church renewal. But he just wants to unleash more and more of a revelation, first of all, of joy that it's getting closer and more and more of an experience of Jesus and who he is that we hear his voice more and more and more and walk with him more and more and more, gets stolen and he steals our heart more and more and more and out of that just explodes this this unbelievable Holy Spirit generosity that fills us all with gladness and joy in his presence. That's what Jesus is wanting to do in our hearts today. Well, I'm going to pray now, and then we're going to sing one final song of worship to him. Because it's all about him. So I want you just to close your eyes. And maybe you're here today, and you have, you've never actually given your life to Jesus. And maybe you just, maybe you've been sitting there for the last 20 minutes and you're going, I wish he would shut up. I just need to get, someone needs to lead me to Jesus. I've heard stories like that. Someone just lead me to Jesus. The Spirit's just moving in your heart and you, you just feel something's tugging on you and you want to give your life to Jesus today. You can. I'm going to pray for you in just a moment. But I want you to know that just out of those doors over there, across from the, the sanctuary is a prayer room. You go in there and tell someone. You don't have to leave here today going, oh, how do I give my life to him? You can give, you can talk to someone in there and pray with someone and they will lead you to Jesus and what that means. I'm also going to pray for you right now as well. So you just bow your heads and close your eyes. Lord Jesus, and you can just pray this in your head. If this is how you, if you want to give your life to him, you can just pray this with me. Lord Jesus, I, I want to give you my life as of today. I want to commit myself to you. You are coming back soon, and I don't know how I know that, but it's something tugging in my heart. I know that you're coming back soon, and I want today to be the start of me being yours. And so, Jesus, I'm giving you my life, and I'm going to tell someone about it today, and I'm going to pray with someone today about that. And then for the rest of us here this morning, this afternoon now, Lord Jesus, we need to encounter you. We need to study. We need to be excited. Jesus, Give us the joy by your Holy Spirit. Tear down the barriers that keep us from being filled with joy at the thought that you were coming back soon. I pray that this church, Lord, your Holy Spirit would reveal to us that we would know the signs with wisdom, that we would study them with passion. And Lord, that we would encounter you, that this would become a truly a praying, worshiping church that loves you with everything. And then, Lord Jesus, that you would unleash in us a spirit of generosity like has not been seen in the Canadian church ever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.